0: If you were to look at the last 50 or 100 years, you might well think that women have always been on an upward track when it comes to participation in the workplace.
1: Developing economic equality for most women means leaving their work at home to join the labor force.
0: Over the past century, the proportion of women in paid work has tripled in many developed high-income countries, the same places where the gender pay gap has been getting smaller.
2: The gender
3: pay gap between full-time working women and their male counterparts is at its narrowest point ever here in the U.S.
0: So it'd be easy to conclude that economic growth is the driver of positive change for women in the labor market. And that was the received wisdom, until one woman decided it was time to start asking questions.
3: I've always wanted to be a detective. I've been a detective since I was a little kid.
0: Claudia Golden is an American economist, and in the 1980s she decided to go back further and investigate what women's work looked like over the past 200 years of American history.
3: Being a detective means that you have a question, and the question is so important that you will go to any end to find it.
0: That involved digging deep into the archives and pulling out data that people thought didn't even exist.
3: In addition, a detective always believes that there is a way of finding the answer.
0: The answer that Claudia found is that during the steady economic growth in the 200-year period from 1800, female employment in America over that time is shaped like the letter U. As industrialization brought new jobs from agriculture to the factories, female employment in America decreased. Changes to women's education, and crucially the introduction of the contraceptive pill, helped turn things around again in the 20th century. And that was just the start. In the decades that followed, Claudia's often surprising findings have helped us understand the forces behind changes in female participation in the workplace and their earnings. And it's a body of work that caught the attention of some important people in Sweden.
3: The
1: Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences has decided to award Sveriges Riksbanks Prize in Economic Sciences in memory of Alfred Nobel 2023 to Professor Claudia Goldin, Harvard University, USA, for having advanced our understanding of women's labour market outcomes.
0: You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird.
2: In Bahrain, I'm Alice Fulwood.
0: In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. And in today's show, we explore why Claudia Golden's work makes her the worthy winner of this year's Nobel Prize in
1: Economics.
2: First, we look at why the questions Claudia's research has answered are so important
1: women's increased involvement in the economy was the most significant change in labor markets during the past century. Then, we'll hear more from Claudia herself
4: about her groundbreaking work on the impact of the contraceptive pill.
3: I could see large changes in women's professional employment. These are huge changes in the early 1970s. And I realized that we had to explain it, what was going on.
0: And we find out how Claudia has helped us understand the underlying forces that keep the gender pay gap wide open.
3: One has the -the on-call-at-the-office job and one has the on-call-at-home job. And he's making a lot more than she's making. And what his job, for various reasons, is the greedy job.
0: Hello, Tom, and a big hello and uh, welcome back to Money Talks for you, Alice. Hey, Mike. Yes, the uh, Wanderer returned.
2: Hi. Yes, it's great to be back.
0: Is it actually great to be back, though, compared to being on honeymoon in Japan and flying around the world? Is it actually good?
2: Well, I mean, you have to define back here because I have actually continued my jet-setting ways. Almost as soon as I got home, I turned around and flew straight to Bahrain. So I haven't spent much time idling in Washington, decompressing in my slippers. I am back to work though, which is somewhat refreshing. I feel like a lot has happened in my absence with the FTX trial and markets going crazy. So lots to get excited about.
4: What takes you to Bahrain, Alice?
2: The Economist is actually hosting a big fintech event here and I came out to do an interview which, spoiler alert, may feature in a forthcoming episode of Money Talks. Still, the main thing I'm excited about is that I've made it back for the annual Nobel Prize in Economics episode, which is always one of my favourites.
0: Yes, it's that time of the year again where some unsuspecting, or perhaps in some cases a little bit suspecting academic, gets woken up at four in the morning, that's if they're based in the US by the dulcet Swedish tones on the other end of the phone, telling them that they've won one of the most prestigious awards going. This year, the deserving recipient was one of the firm favourites, Claudia Golden, the Henry Lee Professor of Economics at Harvard University. Had either of you come across Golden's work before?
2: Yes, I'm actually a huge fan of many of the papers she has written. I feel like any woman in their early 30s or so has probably been admonished by their mother, as I have, that the workplace was a place that they had to really fight to break into and that fight was almost impossible for their mothers or my grandmother. And as a teenager, I became fascinated by the question of what it was that had kicked off the women's liberation movement and made it possible for women to gain a more equal footing. And it was actually Claudia Golden's paper on birth control which we are going to dive into later that was really the foundation of my framework for how things happened it was these technologies like birth control pills and labor-saving devices like dishwashers that seemed to have freed women from the tyranny of domestic life.
4: Well I didn't come across Claudia Golden in my teenage years like Alice but a couple of years ago I did read her book Career and Family which
0: is very good I definitely recommend We're going to hear a fair bit from Claudia herself in a moment, but to introduce her work and why it's been deemed so vital to the field of economics, let's bring in Arjun Romani, who covered this year's Nobel Prize for The Economist. Hi, Arjun. Hey, Mike. Great to be here. Now I'm going to give you the unenviable task of trying to sum up and introduce the life's work of an academic labor economist whose research has covered at various times two centuries of women's participation in the labor market.
1: So who is she? So Claudia is a professor of economics at Harvard. And I think she's best described academically as an economic historian. So she did her undergrad at Cornell, did her PhD at UChicago, and she studied under Robert Fogel, who himself won the Nobel Prize back in 1993. And she actually wrote an interesting Journal of Economics Perspectives paper about Robert Fogel winning the prize and his field, and they called it cliometrics, which is basically the use of data and statistics to study history. And I think that's what makes her very unique because since Fogel, she's the first real economic historian to win the prize. And that's what she won for, for the study of the history of women's labor market outcome. So I find this whole rise of
0: cliometrics, the intersection of sort of modern economics and history really fascinating.
1: What would you say are her key ideas in these research areas? Claudia's main contribution is basically taking these various economic variables, things like labor force participation, employment, the wage gap for women, and really documenting their historical evolution. She's been able to provide data to these questions over 200 years in a lot of cases where data didn't even exist before. So, you know, that required a lot of trawling through these historical archives and so forth. And crucially, she's provided theory and evidence as to why these variables have changed how and when they did. So we've gotten perhaps the first comprehensive picture of the economics of gender and family over the past 200 years. And what is it about what she found that is seen as quite so significant? So I think the significance comes from the importance of her research field. So she says at the top of one of her papers in 2006, which is women's increased involvement in the economy was the most significant change in labor markets during the past century, right? So female labor force participation was something like 15% at the beginning of the 20th century, and now it's closer to 60%, right? And so that's a huge change to economic structure, has implications for how families are organized and overall the size of an economy as well. And she's basically been able to explain why that happened and why, if you look to wages as well, why wage gaps have changed over time, why they've compressed, and then why they still exist today. And Professor Golden has been talked about
0: as being in the running for some years now. Why do you think the Nobel Committee chose this
1: year to be her year? One thing that's interesting if you look at the prize every year, you can see they'd like to cycle through topics, right? So last year was a prize for banking and financial markets. The year before that was a prize for econometrics and looking at natural experiments in labor markets. And so they like to kind of cycle through different methodologies and different domains of economics. And so economic history really hadn't been given a prize since her advisor back in 1993. So I think that was part of it. I think the other part is, you know, as I said, the question is extremely important socially. There's political salience to it as well, right? So some of her more recent work documents why the wage gap exists today and actually comes with some quite surprising findings that the wage gap isn't actually due to discrimination on the part of employers. It's actually driven by something more surprising, which I think Claudia will probably tell you about later in this conversation. Last thing I should just mention is I think the methods here are just very creative, right? So she's using economic history techniques, looking at historical archives. She's also doing a lot of careful econometrics. There's basically a lot of mixed methods all coming together into one. Brilliant. Arjun, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Mike. And with that, who better
0: to hear from than the woman herself? Earlier, I had the pleasure of talking to Claudia Golden, the winner of this year's Nobel Prize in Economics. Claudia, thank you very much for joining us. I'm delighted. So, tell us a little bit, initially, what it's like to get a call very early in the morning, I think, from the Nobel Committee.
3: It's sort of an out-of-body experience. That's how I think about it, that you know to be very happy. I go to sleep very late, so it's not as if I had a lot of sleep. I have a very wonderful helpmate, my husband, and an extremely well-behaved dog. And so everyone was sort of ready to go into action. There was no problem. It was very, very smooth. Well,
0: you've been recognized by the Nobel Committee for having advanced the understanding, among other things, of women's labor market outcomes taken together. It's a very large body of work over a number of decades. But let's start with where it all started for you. At what stage in your education or your academic career, did you realize that this was where you wanted to focus your research and why?
3: It was rather late in some sense. It was probably about eight years after I received my PhD. So it's a lesson for people that you retain your curiosity and you follow various questions. And sometimes they lead to something that becomes an utter passion It actually began with my work on rather more classic questions in economic history, in American economic history, concerning the role of the American Civil War, the meaning of slavery. And then I started working on black and white women in the latter part of the 19th century and large differences in what they were doing and why that was the case. And then I started working on immigrant families. And it was only then that I realized that what I was really interested in was the person who was sort of at the center of those households, the adult married woman, the mother, who was often ignored in the data because she was primarily doing care work.
0: And this involved a lot of sort of detective work at the time, because you were looking through historical records to get data on female involvement in the workplace, labor market participation. And at the time, it wasn't 100% clear to everyone that
3: this sort of information was available at all. Is that right? That's right. There was no clear definition of the labor force until the 1930s and with the 1940 census. And so people were asked, what is your occupation? And you had to pick what it was. And so women might say, well, I'm a housewife, even though they ran a boarding house, even though they were equal in sharing with the family business, even though they were working about one third of their time in some factory outside their home. And what were the sort of
0: key findings here? I know that one of them is the sort of U-shaped female labor force function over time. What was that and how did it change the prevailing wisdom on women's involvement in the labor market?
3: Yes, so some of these ideas, we depend upon the reading of history and economic development by impressive individuals. And one of them was Esther Bozerup who is an extraordinary social scientist. And Esther suggested that there was this U-shape, but she didn't really explore it that much. And when I was looking at records, that it was pretty clear that when the home and the market were very close, I think about Benjamin Franklin, who had his bookbinding business in his basement. As I think of it, his wife, Deborah, did work in it, even though she had countless children. But it was pretty clear that when the home and the business were much closer, when the home and the factory were much closer, that women did a lot more, that there weren't the commuting costs. And then as markets expanded and as work left the family farm and the family business, then women's employment became more specialized into the home, even though they still may have contributed to market production. And then as they left the home and contributed more to market production, it expanded, and so that's where you get that type of view. And Esther Bozerup, who was working in the field of economic development, she could see the countries that were less market-developed were at one side of the U and countries that were more market developed were at the more developed side of the U. And so I took that into my work and into the bigger data sets.
0: Let's talk a little bit about something that you wrote in 2002 and have written about since as well, which was on the influence of the contraceptive pill on women in the workplace in the US. What made you want to look at this? And when you did, what did you find?
3: This particular piece was really based on my own life, and and I don't usually engage in autobiography, but it was the case that I could see large changes in women's professional employment. These are huge changes in the early 1970s. So The fraction of college graduate women who are going into medicine, who are going to law, a little bit later into MBAs, into a range of professions and professional education, I realized that we had to explain it, what was going on. And I know from personal experience, and you can see it in the data, there was a gigantic change in the age at first marriage that By sort of the end of the 1960s, women who were graduating from college were, by and large, attaching themselves to a male partner to the extent that this was different sex relations. And if he got pregnant, it was very nice to be able to say, well, that was the person everybody knew. It was sort of public information. Without good female-controlled Effective contraception, that is the pill or the IUD, women and men were attaching themselves to each other at rather, to our eyes today, young ages in college. And that meant that they married earlier. And so you can see in the data that once the pill comes out and is enabled to be used, and this is the important part, by young unmarried women. The age of first marriage just shoots up. Once the age of marriage changes, women are better able to pursue another three to four to five years of education. Let me just say one other thing, which, is, I said, enabled. The pill is approved. It is taken up almost immediately by married women, but not by single women because there are a set of laws at the state level in the U.S., that were preventing young women from obtaining the pill. So the pill was a game-changer. And I said it was my own personal experience. I could look back at my own life and remember the difficulties of getting the pill in the state of Illinois in 1969, 1970. And then that changed enormously. And I remember saying to my husband, Larry, we should write about this. This was enormously important. And he said, no, 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 it's hard to identify. And then I figured out the changes in the laws. And then he said, yep, this is a good thing to write on.
0: That's an amazing story. There's sort of conclusions there and this huge change in autonomy and the ability to sort of plan your own life to a large degree. This intersects into some other work that you've done on the quiet revolution and the shift that we saw in the 20th century from female employment being mostly about household income to being a fundamental part of identity and societal
3: worth and things changing on that front. Could you tell us a little bit about that work? Together with the changes that I was just talking about, There was also a sense on the part of high school students sometime in the 1960s in which women were looking a bit ahead and seeing that their lives could be different from the lives of their mothers or those of their older sisters. You can see it in the data. They began to take more math courses and more science courses. And the rates of women going to college and graduating from college begin to increase enormously so that by 1980 that's sort of the crossover point and women are after 1980 the majority in the US of college graduates and the majority of college enrollment there is this large change in which a generation is sort of breaking with the past. And this new group is a group that sets their sights on two things, to have a career, which by and large no cohort of women in the past had done in a very great way, but also to reserve some time later to have a family. They could see that having a family looked pretty easy after all, Their mothers and older sisters seem to have two, three, four children without any problem. And so they said the career is really the hard one. So I'm going to delay marriage and get my law degree and then work on being partner in a firm. And then I'll have some children and I'll be uh, better prepared in terms of income and in terms of my own personality and where I want to be. And that's the way to have a satisfying life. And they were somewhat surprised by the fact that if you delay having kids long enough, you often don't have them.
0: So, Tom, Ellis, what did you make of the first half of our interview? Yeah, I mean, if I'm very honest with myself, I think I found
4: a lot of my economics degree deeply unsatisfying, as it felt often like, you know, you ended up in these deep technical rabbit holes and lost sight of the big picture in terms of really trying to explain the underlying economic forces shaping the world. And often, although not always, of course, I think that kind of longer term historical perspective that people like Claudia Golden bring is really crucial to that. It, It reminds me a bit of that Winston Churchill quote, that the farther back you can look, the farther ahead you can see. And when it comes to these big society-shaping issues like the role of gender in the economy, I think the work of people like Claudia Golden is critical.
2: Yeah, I understand Tom's frustration with his economics degree, although mine was perhaps for a different reason. It can be just so hard to get concrete answers to questions in economics. You know, why did inflation rise? Well, there are 50 variables and no controlled experiments, so maybe it's this. What I want to pick up on is what Arjun said about how creative her methods are, because it really does make her conclusions so compelling. She delivers you real answers to real questions. What she said there about how she had had that conversation with her husband about the paper they wrote on the contraceptive pill. She knew this was important, but until she could find a good data set to help explain how important, she didn't do it. And in the end, she used this sort of very clever method, which was looking at variations in the time at which different states reduced the legal hurdles to getting the birth control pills, which helped isolate the effect. So say it became easy to get the pill in Illinois in 1968, and in Missouri, it didn't happen until 1970. She looked at the enrollment rates in various degrees and found this idiosyncratic triple-fold increase in degrees which required essentially a long time in the workforce to pay off, like doing a law degree or a medicine degree. And by doing that, you could see the sort of rational economic decision-making taking place in real time. When women got the pill, they knew they could prevent themselves having children long enough for those expensive degrees to pay off. So they started taking them in sort of enormous numbers. So why are there women lawyers now? Well, in large part, it's because of the pill. And she has uncovered that real answer.
0: Yeah, I think that stuff around her methods and the way she brought something new into the study of these historical questions and made them relevant to the modern world as well is what's most interesting to me. I did a history degree at university, and I remember reading about the rise of cliometrics for the first time and the resurgence of economic history in the 20th century people like Fogel, who, as Arjun said, was Claudius' mentor. And so seeing this is really nice for me in the sense that it's exactly the sort of area of study that, I guess, got me interested in economics or finance at all. And I think it spells out how valuable it is to have both sets of tools. You know, you can have something that's rigorous and seriously modeled and seriously thought about from a theory perspective, and something that uses serious archival work as well. And they clearly work fairly well together rather than completely separately. And I think that's what makes this form of history such a compelling contribution to sort of understanding the ways things are happening right now, especially when it comes to an area of inquiry like female participation in the workplace. After the break, we'll hear more from Claudia Golden about her groundbreaking work on the gender pay gap. And if you're curious to know more about what a Nobel Prize winning labour economist thinks of the Barbie movie, stick around for that as well.
2: But first, you'll hopefully know by now that we are launching a new podcast subscription. And it starts on the 24th of October.
4: It means that you'll need to be a subscriber to continue listening to Money Talks and our other weekly shows like Babbage and Drum Tower, as well as to brand new shows.
0: If you're already a subscriber to The Economist, thank you you'll have full access to all our podcasts. If not, you'll need to sign up to Economist Podcasts Plus. And if you do that right now, you can take advantage of a special half-price offer for our listeners, twenty-four fifty for the whole year, or just $2, pounds or euros a month.
2: Thousands of you have already signed up. Thank you so much for your support. You clearly know a good deal when you see one.
4: To join them and sign up for that special offer right now, click on the link in the show notes. If you're too busy to do that right now, it's easy to find the link later by googling Economist Podcast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our
1: prices down.
0: Before the break, we heard the first half of our interview with Claudia Golden, where we spoke with her about her influences and earlier work on the introduction of the contraceptive pill. Next up, we turn to her more recent findings on the thorny issue of the gender pay gap and her explanation of why it persists. So this massive move of women into professional careers that had previously been considered the dominion of men entirely during the 20th century brought up the huge political relevance of gender wage gaps. This is where you've done some pioneering research from the mid-1980s onwards. And through this, another concept has come up through your work, which is the idea of greedy jobs. Could you explain a little bit about your research and about that concept?
3: So this is work that I've done rather recently. And the question is, what accounts for differences between men's earnings and women's earnings, particularly among the more educated group? Really, the earnings gaps change over a woman's time in the labor force. So when she begins working, let's say there are two lawyers they both get their degrees from the same law school. They're both equally brilliant. And they begin work in some major law firm. After all, they have debts. They want to pay them off. They make the same amount of money. They get married. They're a different sex couple. And they're happy. They're both, you know, on a track to get partnership. And then they decide, you know, let's not put off having kids because then we won't have them and we really want them. So they have one or two children, and they realize that they both can't work these grueling hours at the big law firm. And so she or one of them might take a job at a less demanding firm. I said she because that's the way it's going to be. But they have a choice. They could both go to the smaller boutique law firm and do pretty well, and then they would preserve couple equity Or they could have one at the big law firm and one at the smaller law firm, and they could see that if they do that, they have $50,000 more a year. Well, that's a large amount of money. They have a mortgage. They still have some student debt. And now they have two kids. So they choose this. One has the -the on-call-at-the-office job, and one has the on-call-at-home job. And he's making a lot more than she's making. And what his job, for various reasons, is the greedy job. And when I say for various reasons, because I have a real definition of the fact that the more hours someone puts in at a greedy job, the greater the implicit wages. Per hour. And so that's the definition of the greedy job. But most people don't require that definition. They hear the word greedy job and they say, I know what it is. So,
0: with that in mind, that concept of the greedy job and the idea of having more equity within a given couple, you've talked as well about the possibility of making some of these roles more flexible, I suppose, less greedy in that sense. Do you think that there are particular public policy or private sector solutions to increase flexibility, to increase equity, to really get at the forces that are driving the modern gender pay gap?
3: So there are two ways of going. One is to decrease the cost of care, and that could be child care or elder care. One policy might be to have subsidization, and that's the way the Nordic countries operate. The firms also have an interest in making work more flexible. I'll give you a good example. So a pediatrician working by herself or himself and might be called at various hours to look after a demanding patient. Well, it makes sense for that pediatrician to form a group with other pediatricians, and that child will see many of the pediatricians in the group, that's done. Group practices create flexibility for professionals. That's done in veterinary medicine. Pharmacists are very good substitutes for each other. They are phenomenal professionals, but you rarely go to the pharmacist and say, you know, John, I really want Jane this time. (laughs) So having flexibility for professionals is good for the firm and it's good for the clients.
0: And obviously we've seen some huge changes to workplace flexibility driven by the pandemic.
3: The pandemic led to a decrease in the greediness of various jobs and an increase in the productivity of flexible jobs because of remote work. If you no longer have to go to Tokyo to sign that M&A, if you no longer have to go to Zurich to hammer out the details of a contract, that means that the person who is the on-call at-home person can now take those very high-earning jobs, what had been a greedy job. So this is sort of one of the silver linings to the pandemic.
0: So you published something, in fact, this very week, which is possibly one of the most fortuitously titled working papers ever published. It's called Why Women Won, and it covers a number of the areas that we've already talked about. Tell us what's in the paper and also what your sort of future research interests are.
3: I started working on that last year when an absolutely delightful and very, very successful business person from Korea visited my office. And she runs one of the most important video game companies in the world. And she was quite outraged. And she said, why is it that in Korea, we do not have laws protecting women? And so she said to me, you have to work on this. And I thought, well, that's interesting because I'm ready to work on something new. And I then started looking into what had been written about the evolution of women's rights in America. I figured I'm not going to tackle Korea until I understand the United States. And so therefore, Why Women Won is about the evolution of women's rights in America after suffrage. And this project took me into an area, and it's still taking me into an area in which I am ill-versed and must take a course at the law school so that I don't make any mistakes.
0: Claudia, we heard one thing from a very well-placed source in your household, I won't name him, that you had a strong view on the Barbie movie that we should ask you
3: about. I loved it. (laughs) I've only seen it twice, so I'm ready to see it a third time. So after I saw the movie, I went online to see what people of various political views thought of it, and particularly women. And women who are, let us say, right-wing, liked it as well, in fact, loved it and said about it, oh, it's this wonderful, colorful movie. It is a movie about mother-daughter relationships. And I thought, it's so wonderful that you liked it. Did we see the same movie? (laughs) And so that's the brilliance of Greta Gerwig, that she created a movie that could be enjoyed by someone like me who sees it as a movie about The role of the patriarchy, about the vulnerability of women, about the fact that the only way we are going to succeed as a society is for the Barbies and the Kens to be together as real people. To me, that was so obvious, but it was everything, and it was a movie of actual depth.
0: Claudia, all that remains for me to say is congratulations and thank you very much for joining us on Money Talks.
3: Well, thank you.
0: So Alice, Tom, what do you make of Claudia Golden?
2: Yeah, I found a lot of Claudia's work very enlightening. And I think that just as much for the more recent stuff on greedy jobs I found a lot of the discourse around gender pay gaps kind of frustrating and sometimes a little lazy, to be honest. People are so happy to assume that the answer to disparities is always discrimination. And frankly, I think that if a firm could hire an entire workforce of women for, say, 15% less than they are paying an identical male workforce, say, I do think a lot of firms would do that. It's obviously not that simple. And I think it's important to rule out other explanations And the evidence she provides about greedy jobs and couples maximising combined income against the constraint of having children is compelling and rational and does make a huge amount of sense.
0: Yeah, it feels like she's doing something that's surprisingly rare, at least in academia, which is to develop something that's empirically sound, has theory backing it up, addresses all sorts of questions and also feels extremely intuitive to the way people our sort of age perceive their lives to be.
2: I feel far more worried that myself or maybe my friends will make these small incremental career sacrifices so that we can have a family that will add up to essentially sort of an abdication of our own ambition. And I'm a lot more worried about that than I am about being discriminated against at work for being a woman. And perhaps I'm lucky, you know, The Economist is a great place to work. And I don't say that to blame women for the choices that they make in their careers. But essentially, I think what Claudia has done is, allow women to be on guard for what we know might happen. Women should know what they are choosing and what the consequences of those choices are. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do anything about it. There are ways to minimise the cost of these choices, like funding for childcare, which can be adopted. And I wholly agree with her that flexible remote work will make things much easier for so-called greedy workers. But yeah, I found her more recent stuff just as enlightening as I did her earlier work.
4: Yeah, this discussion reminds me of a study that I did in my previous job, actually, around what people prioritize when they're choosing a job. And of course, people are incredibly varied on this. So, you know, speaking in terms of the average man and the average woman is a little bit misleading, but just putting that to one side, the only meaningful gender difference that we found when we looked at this was around the importance placed on flexibility, which across countries actually was higher for women. And I think that really speaks to what Claudia was saying about greedy work. You know, it is, of course, possible for a heterosexual couple to both choose lower intensity jobs and and manage childcare together, or even the man to take on more of the childcare burden. But unfortunately, the reality is that there's still a lot of social pressure that a lot of women feel around this, which continues
0: to shape the longer term outcomes for them in the labor market. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not even just a labor market question. I mean, we sort of got into it a little bit there, but this sort of affects this whole realm of demographics as well, which we've written a decent amount about. And it's hugely important. You look at countries where you do not get the balance of labor market and household roles right, or anywhere near to close, where there's a huge burden on women to have both a sort of full professional career, and to do almost all childcare, almost all housework. Places in East Asia and Southern Europe where you end up with incredibly low fertility rates. And this is because, as I think Claudia said at one point, something has to break when you're in that position. And the answer is that people delay having children for a long time and and many of them eventually don't have children or they might only have one child. And so the spillovers of what she's researching here are absolutely colossal in terms of the level of importance that they have for things that go way beyond female participation in the labour market. And I think that crucial importance really comes across when you hear her talking about how this is affected and intertwined with her own life. It's enormously important to all of us. And you can tell that from the way that she talks about it. So I think it's been absolutely fascinating. It was really lovely to talk to her about.
2: Uh, yeah, yeah I am jealous. I'm a big fan of her work. I bag z next year's Nobel laureates, guys. They're all mine.
0: <laughs> we'll see. No more holidays. I've got a, <laughs> No time off, just in case. <laughs> Okay, shall we pivot to our stats of the week? What have you got for me?
4: Let's do it. My stat of the week is minus 7%, and that is the decrease in Disney's share price since Bob Iger took back the reins nearly a year ago now. So there was a lot of excitement about the return of the Jedi when Iger came back, but... <laughs> As we've covered previously on the show, Disney faces all sorts of structural challenges around the decline of cable TV and its unprofitable push into streaming and the big debt load it has after its acquisition of 21st Century Fox a few years ago. And Iger, he has cut costs and he's made a few other moves, but he hasn't really managed to right the ship in the way that I think a lot of people were hoping he would so Nelson Peltz, who's a, an activist investor who'd previously bought up a stake in the company and and then stood down after Iger announced some of those cost cuts, is back on the war path again. He's building up his stake in the company, and I'm sure Bob Iger is delighted to hear that. Just
0: to be clear, Tom, is the Jedi a nickname that people other than you use for <laughs> yeah. Bob Iger and not a sector expert?
4: We actually, at The Economist, we had a, an article that referenced the return of the Jedi. It was a great pun, guys. <laughs> Leave me alone.
2: (laughs) It was a great pun. My Saturday (laughs) week this week is 5%, which is the chance that Sam Bankman-Fried gave himself for the likelihood that he would one day be president of the United States of America. This is just one of the many fun details that is coming out of the current trial of the collapse of FTX, in which he's accused of various kinds of fraud, which he
0: denies. 5% seems incredibly high to me.
2: Are we surprised that he's really backing himself? He seems Uh, like the type.
0: I wonder if he's updated his probabilities on this now. I mean, it, it maybe doesn't necessarily. You know, he's not out for the count. It's not zero. You know, it could still happen. You never know.
2: Probably not materially different than zero, but still, no, not zero.
0: My stat of the week is 70 million, which comes from another persecuted entity Huawei, the Chinese tech company. They've told Nikkei Asia publication that they expect to ship between 60 and 70 million phones in 2024, which would be twice as many as they shipped this year or last year. This is really, really interesting in terms of the question of how well the export controls directed against the company are working. If they think they can really seriously return to the smartphone market, making fairly advanced phones, even in the face of pretty strict export controls, it will be very interesting to see if anything like that figure comes to pass.
4: Yes, things seem to be uh, really starting to turn a corner for Huawei after a few tough years following some of the sanctions that they were under. I saw that they've also recently launched a car, which is an interesting adjacency for them. But there you go.
0: Yeah, good luck getting that one on the roads of the US. Um, (laughs) We'll see. We'll see how well that does.
2: Before we go, I just wanted to say a quick hello to Finn O'Leary, who is an avid listener of the podcast, who I met in Bahrain, and who told me he just signed up for Podcast Plus. So uh, thank you so much, Finn. It was a pleasure meeting you. And for listeners to the Economist Daily Podcast, The Intelligence, who were expecting to hear an episode with the author Michael Lewis, that will be next week.
0: Until then, all there is left is to thank Claudia Golden
2: and thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to subscribe to Economist Podcast Plus. There's more info in the show notes, along with a link to sign up for that special offer.
0: And you can always write to us at podcasts at Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth.
2: Our sound engineer is Tingley Lim.
0: And the executive producer is Marguerite
4: Howe.
0: I'm Mike Bird.
2: I'm Alice Fulwood.
0: I'm Tom Lee Devlin. And this is The Economist.